Bibles to the book of Revelations, chapter 20, verse 10, to chapter 22, verse 6. Verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulphur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and in him and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is called the Book of Life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found in, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. From the first heaven and the first earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from, those, from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He was who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues came and said to me, Come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain of great, great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with, the, with brilliance like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, 
and on them there were names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. He measured its walls. It was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopase, and the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The, the great street of the city was pure, of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour to it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what it is shameful or deceitful but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the, and the leaves of the tree are, not for, are, for, are for the healing of nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and its servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of spirits, for the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants things as much as much soon take place. Concluding our overview sermon series that we started back in March and we're finishing in November, uh, 28 sermons later, uh, and we come to the renewal of all things, the conclusion. So before we look further at this passage together, uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, it doesn't just tell us what has happened in the past. Uh, it doesn't just tell us how to live in the present in the light of the past. It also t points us to the future <clears throat> and shows what we can look forward to in the future so that we can live rightly in the present with a sense of anticipation uh, and focus. So please we pray. As we look at these uh, chapters at the very end of your Bible and at the very end of human history, uh, we pray that we would come away with a clearer sense of what does lie ahead.
and would live life now in the light of it, uh, such that we lead lives of purpose and lives of deepening faith in Christ. Amen. Uh, Tracy and myself have recently enjoyed watching a very gripping uh, BBC crime drama called Unforgiven. Uh, it's on the uh, ABC iViewer if you're interested. Uh, Unforgiven does a great job of building the suspense over six episodes. And the enjoyment is journeying with this police detective team as they piece together the evidence. Now then, uh, it would be totally counterproductive to leap to the last episode before watching all the previous episodes. In Revelation chapter 21 to 22, uh, we have the last episode of this era of human history. And indeed, we're going to see it reaches a dramatic climax. And yet, it is the Bible's intention that we should leap ahead to the last episode. For in so doing, it enables us to be ready for what lies ahead and to also look forward to what lies ahead. And two cosmic events fill the screen of these pages, uh, God's final judgment and God's renewal of all things. And we're going to look at each of those in turn. So, God's final judgment. Uh, the scene opens with the convening of God's heavenly court. Uh, chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Uh, him who is seated on it is the king, but he is also the judge, God himself. He is both the monarch and the judiciary. And he sits in all his splendor on this dazzling white throne. Now, of course, Revelation is apocalyptic literature, and it uses symbolism to convey its message. And in Revelation, colors are symbolically significant. And so it is here. The dazzling white throne is significant. White points to the purity of God's righteousness and God's justice. With this judge, there'll be no miscarriage of justice. And with this judge, there'll be no place to hide from his jurisdiction. Chapter 20, verse 11. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. Uh, justice is not always done in this life. Uh, sometimes the guilty do escape judgment in this life. Uh, sometimes they die before they are brought to justice, but not so with this judge. With this judge, even death provides no escape from his justice. And with this judge, human rank or position carry no weight. Great and insignificant are summoned to stand before him in judgment. Chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Uh, verse 13. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And the judgment of this judge is based on perfect knowledge. This judge has a record of everything that every person has ever done, and it's all recorded in his books. Chapter 20, verse 12 again. 
And I saw the dead, uh, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Uh, The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. What is this judge's judgment based on? Well, as with any judge, his job is to determine if the law has been broken. And such is the case here. Each person's life is scrutinized against God's law. Of course, Jesus once summarized God's law. He said God's law basically can be summarized in two commandments. Perfectly love God, perfectly love fellow human beings. And so now the evidence of every thought and every word and every deed is assessed by the judge. And nothing is overlooked. Has this person lived a perfect life of love for God and for others? Now then, if this were the only grounds of judgment, then everybody would be lost. However, there is a second book. Verse 12. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. Uh, Later in chapter 21, we are told that this is the Lamb's book of life. And it contains the names of all those who belong to the Lamb, that is, Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of his people. Uh, Chapter 21, verse 27 says this. Uh, Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So everyone whose name is in the book of life has been pardoned for all their infringements in the book of deeds. Tragically, for those whose names are not in the book of life, no pardon is possible. And in the absence of pardon, only penalty remains. And the penalty is unspeakably awful. It's referred to here as the lake of fire and the second death. Uh, Chapter 20, verse 14. The lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The judgment by this judge is universal and it is absolute. And it means that this eternal banishment not only applies to all people outside of Christ, it also includes all principalities and powers that oppose Christ, including Satan and including death. Chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Chapter 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. These days, the doctrine of hell has been dismissed and trivialized. Uh, These days, people rarely take it seriously. And even in the churches, we hear generally a lot about God's love, but little airtime is given to God's justice or to God's wrath. But this has not always been so. On the 8th of July, uh, 1741, in Enfield, New England, 
the pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards delivered his now famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And God powerfully used this sermon to bring great conviction on many people present in that service that day. Apparently, the crying and the weeping became so loud that Edwards was forced to discontinue his sermon. Instead, he has to go down amongst the people to pray with them in groups. So great was the conviction. And many that day came to a saving faith in Christ. Hell is real. And hell is unimaginably awful. And the more we feel the weight of the horror of hell, the more we'll be galvanized to share the good news of Jesus with others. It will feed into our personal motivation as we think, how can I reach out to those who don't yet know Christ? What will it look like in my day-to-day life? How can I build relational bridges with them to get to know them, to walk alongside them, and ultimately to share this good news with them? It will feed into how we use resources. We'll want to give more of our money to mission agencies so that others can go out and tell this good news to those who have not heard. So, having conveyed the horrors of hell, uh, the vision in Revelation now turns to the bliss of heaven. And with the banishment of all opposition and evil, the way is now open for the renewal of all things. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Uh, Now, surfers often experience heightened anxiety when reading this verse. Uh, No sea in the new creation? How can that be? How can it be perfect? What will I do? Uh, Such concerns are diffused when we remember that this is apocalyptic literature. It is using symbolism, and such is the case here. You see, for a Jew, the sea was a place of chaos. For a Jew, the sea was a place of fear and anxiety and the unknown. And so the absence of any sea here is a symbolic way of saying There's going to be no more anxiety, no more disorder, no more chaos. When this world is renewed, tsunamis and earthquakes and bushfires and droughts and floods and all other environmental disasters will be no more. And the symbolism continues in the next image used, and it's that of a heavenly city. Chapter 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city at the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now, Revelation is actually the tale of two symbolic cities. The first city is Babylon, which is introduced in chapters 14 to 18. And the city of Babylon in Revelation is symbolic of that defiant human spirit present in the original Tower of Babel, if you remember, back in Genesis. Uh, That was where human society cooperated together to build a tower back to heaven. It was human society established in arrogant independence of God. 
We can have the good life. We don't need God. And so in Revelation, the city of Babylon represents rebellious human society established in arrogant independence of God. But the days of Babylon are numbered. And with the advent of God's final judgment, Babylon falls. Uh, Revelation 18 verse 10 says this. Uh, woe, woe, O great city of Babylon, city of power. In one hour your doom has come. And so as the dust settles from the destruction of Babylon, we see what follows. And it's the emergence of a new city. And this city is not the product of proud human endeavor to build a tower to heaven. No, it is God's city that actually descends from heaven. And if Babylon represents a society grounded in arrogant defiance of God, the new Jerusalem is symbolic of a society centered in joyful communion with God. And look how else it's described in verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Uh, does that ring any bells in the Bible? Uh, where else do we see this imagery used of a bride or of marriage? Of course, in the Bible, marriage is used as a symbolic way of talking about God's relationship with his people. Now, in Ephesians 5, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And hence, the holy city is also the bride. In other words, it's the people of God. The New Jerusalem symbolically describes a glorious new God-centered society. And it describes a way of life as God intended it to be. It's the final fulfillment of all of God's promises, and it's the coming of God's kingdom in all of its fullness. Now then, in this uh, overview series, of course, we've been using uh, the kingdom of God as this golden thread that runs through the whole Bible. Uh, it's this uh, summary statement we've had, which is God's people uh, living in God's place under God's good rule and his blessing. And of course, in Eden, uh, we saw the pattern of the kingdom. Uh, in the fall, we saw the perishing of the kingdom. In the covenants through Abraham and Moses and David, we have seen the promise of the kingdom. And with Christ, we've seen the, the inauguration of the kingdom. And finally, in Revelation, we see the perfecting of the kingdom. We see the new creation. Now then, uh, if you go into a travel agent, uh, they will use holdy brochures to entice you to part with all your hard-earned cash. Uh, these holdy brochures contain pictures, of course, of idyllic settings, uh, beautiful mountainscapes or river cruises. Uh, they contain pictures of smiling, beautiful people with milk-white teeth sitting in front of a smorgasbord of exotic food and wine laid out before them. And as you look at these holy brochures, you naturally think, I want to go there. And so it is with Revelations chapter 21 to 22. It's the brochure for God's renewed world. And it's not a color brochure. And there is no way that it could possibly convey the full grandeur 
Rather, it's a pencil sketch brochure, and it serves to whet our appetites for life in God's perfected kingdom. And its purpose is this. It wants to pull at our heartstrings. It wants to say, if that is how great it's going to be, then yes, I want above all else to be there. And as a result, we will see this present world more clearly for what it actually is. We'll say to ourselves, hang on, if that's how good it's going to be, then yes, really, actually, I am an alien and a stranger now, and we'll live accordingly. So let's look at the richness of life in the renewed creation. And to do so, what we're going to do is this. Uh, we're going to trace the connections between uh, God's covenant promises and their final fulfillment. Uh, everything which was promised to Abraham and through Moses and David, we're going to see is fulfilled ultimately in the new creation. And we're going to use those um, four aspects of the promises, which particularly were land, blessing, relationship, and rule. Uh, there isn't time, of course, to trace all of the connections. Uh, we could look at the connections between uh, the garden and Eden and the new creation. There's plenty of those here as well, but time does not allow. So we're just going to satisfy ourselves at this point with uh, those four aspects of the, the, the promises. So uh, let's firstly look at land. Uh, real estate was a big headline in God's promises to Abraham and his descendants. If you recall, God promised them a special land of their own. And it would be a place of abundance, and it would be a place of blessing. Of course, life in Canaan was not the end game. The prophet Isaiah uh, develops the trajectory of this promise. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 65 and 66, he foresees a new heaven and a new earth. And this is what Revelation now connects with. You see, part of our inheritance in Christ is real estate. We will be granted title to the land in this world renewed. Now, of course, Australians are well known for their preoccupation with property ownership, and therefore we can appreciate more than most the attraction of what is on offer here. Prime time real estate, waterfront property, and not in a cemetery. So there's the first promise and the fulfillment land. Uh, the second promise was blessing. Uh, dovetailed with this promise of land was God's pledge of blessing. The land would be a place where his people would enjoy all of God's goodness. Uh, they would enjoy what's called shalom. That means peace, prosperity, and flourishing. And so it is in the new creation. Uh, it is the locus of shalom. Uh, the New Jerusalem displays all the hallmarks of lavish opulence. Chapter 21, verse 18. Uh, the wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. And the foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. And prosperity is accompanied by its necessary soulmate, peace. The New Jerusalem is a city of perfect peace. Now, in the ancient world, uh, the night was the time of great danger. 
Uh, the night was the time when an attack by enemies was most likely to happen. And hence the night was the time when the city gates would be closed to protect its occupants. And yet in the New Jerusalem, in this city, it is devoid of all threats. Chapter 21, verse 25. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. Uh, symbolically, there is no night. There is nothing that can threaten the peace of this city's citizens. Everything that robs us of peace and joy in this life now will be banished from the life of Shalom. Chapter 21, verse 4. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. This will be uh, the ultimate good life. A life without pain or sickness or depression or sadness. The third aspect of the promises which is picked up on here is perfect relationship. Uh, firstly, perfect relationship with God. You see, God's promise of land and blessing all hinged on the underlying pledge of God's presence with us. A personal relationship with God was the foundation stone on which all the other promises rested. Uh, remember in Genesis 17 verse 7, God says this to Abraham, I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Of course, uh, the descendants after Abraham, uh, the nation of Israel, did enjoy this unfathomable privilege of God's presence with them. And God made the temple his dwelling place amongst them. And yet, of course, there was also this frustration associated with the temple. Access to God was restricted. Firstly, uh, God's presence was restricted to the place of the temple. The people had to travel to the building to meet with God. And secondly, once at the temple, access truly to God was restricted. Uh, they couldn't go into the inner room of God's presence. Only the priests could do that. So that personal relationship with God for which their hearts yearned was frustrated and yet, what do we see in the New Jerusalem? There is no temple. Chapter 21, verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Why is there no temple? It's no longer needed. It's now obsolete. Because the whole of the creation will be God's temple. God's presence will be everywhere. It'll be even better than Eden. God's people will revel in intimate, unfettered access to him. At chapter 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Remember on Mount Sinai, Moses is not allowed to see God's face. 
And yet in the new creation, all such restrictions are lifted. Chapter 22, verse 4. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And not only uh, will God's people enjoy perfect relationship with God, they'll also enjoy perfect relationship with each other. There'll be no more fighting, no more discord, no more arguments, no more strife. They'll be holy and free from all sin. Human society will be perfected. It'll be unsullied by even the slightest stain of sin or evil. Chapter 21, verse 27. And nothing impure, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And the fourth and final promise which we're going to trace and see the fulfillment of is the promise of rule, the eternal rule of the great king. Remember the promise made to David, a descendant from your family will one day rule on your throne forever. And that is what we see now coming to pass. Chapter 22, verse 3. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. And the Lamb is Jesus, the descendant of David, the promised Messiah. And he now rules supreme. So, as we close, uh, a few reflections of application. You see, it's not just hell that is trivialized by our society. So is heaven. Uh, what is the classic portrayal of heaven? It is, of course, yeah, disembodied uh, spirits floating on a cloud playing a stringed instrument. Well, this may be kind of novel for a first hour or so, but not for eternity. That would be actually quite tedious and quite boring. Now, if a Christian dies before Christ returns, then they are, of course, disembodied for a while. Uh, it's called the intermediate state. Uh, they are then in the presence of Christ, and they await the resurrection of their body. But the intermediate state is not their eternal state. It's not the end of all things. It's not the final goal. The final goal is reached when Christ returns, and that is when he will make all things new. The physical world remained new, as well as the spiritual world. Our physical bodies resurrected, but transformed into eternal, superior bodies. Of course, in Romans chapter eight, uh, creation is portrayed as yearning for the day of Christ's return. Uh, the physical creation knows that its present state is not what it was supposed to be, but it also knows that its present state is not what it will always be. There will come a day when the creation will be liberated and restored. Romans 8 verse 19. Uh, the creation waits an eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. 
we know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. The cosmos is yearning for its renewal. And in that renewed world, we will live in renewed, resurrected, physical bodies. Romans 8 verse 23 says this. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Our world is a beautiful world, and in different ways we delight in its wonder. And yet our world is also a Genesis 3 world. It's affected by the fall, and it's riddled with brokenness and with crime and with hatred and with tragedy. It's not what it was meant to be, and it's not what it will one day be. And whatever beauty and delight we do experience now is just the scantiest foretaste of what it will become. The great fourth century theologian Augustine said this, If these are the beauties afforded to sinful man, uh, speaking about the beauties of the world, what does God have in store for those who love him? Again, if these are the beauties afforded to sinful man, what does God have in store for those who love him? The best is yet to come. And so we persevere in our faith in Christ. And we know that every day that passes is one day closer to the renewal of all things. Revelation 22 verse 20 says this. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with God's people. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord God, uh, the end of this era of history is sobering when we see your judgment. And it's wonderful when we look beyond that to see your renewed creation. We pray that everybody here would be ready for that day. We would live expectantly of that day. Uh, we would live lives of faith in Christ now, uh, joyfully anticipating that day, such that it helps us to live lives of real perspective and vision in the present. Amen.